0: Well, today, um, as you guys know, we've been looking at Old Testament prophets. And um, these Hebrew prophets predicted that someday the Messiah would come. It, it, it's all over. we got four major prophets, right? Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Daniel. And then you got 12 minor prophets. And we're going to be here from one of those today. Now, the Old Testament predicted a coming deliverer that God chose to redeem his people, right, Israel. And he called this deliverer the Messiah, and Messiah comes from this Hebrew word, Mashiach, which means anointed one or chosen one. In fact, when you watch a good reproduction movie on on Jesus's life, you'll hear someone say, Mashiach, you know, the Hebrew word for Messiah, right? the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach is Christos, or in English, Christ. And so the name Jesus Christ is the same as saying Jesus the Messiah. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's that's an important distinction for you to understand when you're working with two different languages out of your holy book, Hebrew and the Old Testament, ...and Greek and the New Testament, and you read and write and think in English, things can get confusing. So today we're going to look at one of the minor prophets, Micah. And uh, the Bible Project does a great video series on all the books of the Bible. In fact, it is absolutely one of the best ways to survey, in my opinion, after 40-some years of of looking at this... ...the Bible, is to go watch these seven, six, seven, eight-minute videos... And if you type in your internet Bible project videos, you'll get not only the Old Testament and the New Testament, but a lot of other videos that they do. They're all short and they're all drawing. Some are color, some are like what you're going to see today. And so what I would like to do is play uh, some clips from the Micah Bible project video, just to kind of bring up the speed on who Micah is and what this is all about. So we'll start with the first one. Micah,
1: Micah lived in a small town named Morashe in the southern kingdom of Judah about the same time as Isaiah and both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel so Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem and he also warned that after them Babylon would bring an even greater destruction
0: Okay, so Michael was a contemporary of Isaiah who we've both been speaking on the last two weeks and also uh, two of the minor prophets, Hosea and, and Amos. And he prophesied in Judah, the southern kingdom, that, You know, these two divided kingdoms that happened right after there was uh, Saul, David, and then Solomon. And after Solomon passed, his son Rehoboam kind of lorded it over the people, and, and the northern ten tribes split off. They became the northern kingdom. We're about 400 years or so into that split, and uh, so it, this is towards the end of it because Assyria is going to come in and take out that green section uh, soon, and, and these guys prophesied, Micah, in about 750 B.C., and, and literally within 30 years, that, that northern nation was, was gone. And we heard that when we looked at the Isaiah prophecy that I did two weeks ago. Now, the second thing that we're going to see in, in this Micah is he talks about judgment coming. So I'll let you see this. So
1: most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake, but he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion.
0: Yeah, so 500 years of rebellion, that's the big part of that. There, There was just great corruption, and you have to see this and understand it to really take in what's happening with these prophecies. If you remember two weeks ago when I did the Isaiah prophecy on the virgin birth, we were dealing with King Ahaz of Judah, the guy who was in charge of the southern kingdom. And this guy in his life had sacrificed one of his own sons to the Canaanite god Molech in the fire right so i mean we are talking about a, a corrupt nation and let me just remind you in the bible particularly in the old testament you learn a principle that we that would be good for us to understand today in our own country which is this we're only one generation removed from sheer chaos And and you see this in the Old Testament, and you go back to the book of um, Joshua, and it said a generation grew up that did not remember the things that that Moses had done, and basically they went off and did their own thing. I listen to very little news these days, but I do in the morning, and and a couple of guys that I've listened to in the morning, they keep bringing up, you know, that we have people in America today that want to govern us that really live by a Marxist ideology meaning Karl Marx's ideology that ultimately led to communism. And, and it's really based on the idea that is the antithesis of what America was founded on. America was really founded on personal responsibility. You took care, you took care of your business, right? But you also lived with Christian charity. So those who are less fortunate, you, you looked out for them. Marxist comes along and basically says, we don't care how much you can produce, we're going to split it all up and give it to everybody. And I'm telling you, in, in our country today, it, it just seems like it's anathema to my mindset of thinking how life should be in the America I grew up in, is that you worked hard and you took care of business, right? Now it is that even if you don't work hard and you don't take care of business, somebody will take care of you. And, and so that's being embraced in our country. And you, and that's why people my age go, what has happened in America? Well, one generation. That's all it takes. And, and, you know, America isn't the kingdom of God. It's just the best country in an otherwise fallen world, in my personal opinion. So just be mindful as you watch things happen in our own lives that it, it can change quickly. And this is what the Old Testament teaches us. Now... This third clip I want to show you, it's, chap, it's all about what he writes in chapter 3 and chapter 4, and he goes into greater detail about God's coming judgment on his people. And I'll show that to you here right now.
1: In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins.
0: All right, this can get confusing. You know, the Assyrians were the ruling power in 722 B.C. when they came in and took out the northern kingdom called Israel. Um, The Babylonians were over 100 years later. And they uh, they came out and took out the Southern Kingdom and took them into captivity. Um Both the Assyrian Empire was in Babylon as well as the Babylonian Empire obviously was in Babylon. But they were two different kingdoms, two different ways of going about controlling the world. And uh, when you go back and study world history, you'll see about the Assyrians and you'll see about the Babylonians and you'll read about the Medo-Persian Empire, you'll read about the Greek Empire that followed that and then you'll read about the Roman Empire. Isn't it interesting? All of those play out on the landscape of our scriptures. And so... In, in this particular story, it's coming. and But what's interesting about this, what Micah does, and what a lot of the prophets that, that talk about this judgment that after four centuries is finally coming down, that God's going to pay back Israel and ultimately Judah for their sins... The, the prophets always juxtapose their, their judgment prophecy alongside a prophecy of hope, this coming deliver, this messianic kingdom that's coming one day, right? So watch this in clip four because that's part of what this book goes to.
1: So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people. And he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations bringing peace to the earth.
0: All right, here's the cool part of these prophecies. Um, historically, we can trace the judgments that happened to the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. We can, we can literally, physically, I mean, historically trace that. We can trace the coming of the Messiah in the first century, right? But we still haven't seen the fulfillment of this messianic kingdom that, that uh, Micah's talking about here in chapters 4 and 5. And and we certainly haven't seen the eradication of evil from the world yet. These are promises, part of these prophecies. You've got the the judgment, you've got the coming deliverer 2,000 years ago, and now we're still waiting for the final fulfillment of these promises that surround Christ's second coming, right? Interesting stuff. So this next clip was going to center on what we're going to look at today. These uh, five verses, six
1: verses we're going to look at today. ...series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world.
0: Right, that's the great, the great hope. So let's just dig into these six verses today. And, and I want to just say, even before I begin here, right in verse 1. Micah is still talking about judgment, and then he shifts gears, okay? So watch this. He goes, mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. What's he talking about? He's talking about when Babylon's going to come in in 100 years, in 605 B.C. And, And they came three times, 605 B.C., 595 B.C., 586 B.C. 586 is when they cleaned it out. And took everybody back to Babylon. But in 605, they came down and they and they made the king Zedekiah a, a client king of Babylon. And then, of course, he didn't do it, and they came back and smoked him. So, um, but um, so Micah is talking about that in verse one, fulfilled. Crazy that we can look back in history and see this. But you, O Bethlehem, and man, I practiced how to say this all week long, Ephrathah. Ephrathah, yeah. just another name for Bethlehem. So it's a dual name, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, right? Uh, are only a small village among the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf, says God. Verse 3, the people of Israel will be abandoned To their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth, then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. By the way, I I put the question in there on the notes for those of you in the community groups when you get to this. This is not talking about when they return from Babylonian captivity. Just a little secret. I'm not going to preach on that right now because this stuff is layered and you got to pull it apart. But verse four, he will stand this ruler of old, to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is a very famous passage. Micah 5 predicts the coming of the Messiah. Matthew says in chapter 2 of his book, the fulfillment of this seven and a half centuries later is what Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, in Judea during the reign of King Herod. That's a New Testament writing, of course. So, what do we learn here? Three things we're gonna look at, and it's not gonna take long. We're looking at a past king, a future king, and really, who's your king this morning? Because that's what this passage really talks to. This coming of old, there's a ruler of ancient origins, right? It says there, whose origins are in the distant past. And if you read something like that, it's a logical thing to stop and just go, okay, how is a baby being born in Bethlehem, a ruler who has origins in the distant past? Well, the answer, and I'd be interested to see how non-believers in Christ would interpret that passage, but the answer for us is simply that Jesus is the Son of God from all eternity, There it is, right? I mean, that's who God's sending, the second person of the triune God, right? But there is actually, from our perspective, more to that than that intense reality. Um, I don't know if you've ever taken note of all the wonderful stories and movies and books we have about this idea of having a great king who used to rule but one day will return, right? Um, off the top of my head, I can think of uh, three stories, uh, King Arthur being one of them, but Robin Hood, that story was uh, Richard the Lionheart was away at the Crusades, and while he was away, what was happening, um, uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham and, and Prince John were What? they were ruling England corruptly and and that's why Robin Hood existed to rob from the rich and give to the poor right Um, this whole idea that one day the good king Richard would return and straighten it all out perhaps the most famous one in our life of course is J.R.R. Tolkien Um, uh, Tolkien um, loved legendary fictional writing right and he wrote the Lord of the Rings and, and the third installment of that is what the return of the king right, and, and Tolkien was a Christian, right, and he was a professor at Oxford, and he had an atheist friend, yes, an atheist friend, C.S. Lewis, who later would write the Chronicles of Narnia, nine volumes. All these books, the Lord of the Rings, the Chronicles of Narnia, are steeped in Christian theology, right, and so here was Tolkien Um, you know, who was a Christian, uh, trying to press upon his younger protege, C.S. Lewis, uh, the whole idea of Christianity. And he knew that Lewis was deeply moved by these stories, you know, that were written in fiction. And um, so speaking to Lewis, he said, he says to him, here's here's my theory, why you're so moved, even though you're a we-are-here-by-accident guy, you know, you're an atheist. He says, why would these stories move you? He goes, these fictional stories say that this world is under an evil spell. And secondly, these stories point to the fact that the material world, this physical world, is not all there is. There is a supernatural and not just a natural. There's a spiritual realm, not just a material realm. And he goes, and thirdly, we, see, we need a sacrificial love to save us. We're not going to be able to do it ourselves, you know. So when you look at the return of the king, I mean, who are the ones sacrificing? Well, Frodo and Sam, right? Aragorn, the returning king, right? These, these stories that just capture our imaginations, right? Lewis says that's a very interesting theory. But all those old stories are lies. As wonderful as they are, and I might add, as much as, oh, I didn't change it yet, did I? What's happened here? Thank you. Um, He's going, even even though I love these stories, in the end, they're all lies. This was this famous conversation that that, uh, Tolkien had with Lewis on what's called Addison's Walk outside of Oxford and Cambridge. And uh, so Tolkien responds to him. And he says, no, they're not all lies. And he goes, how about this one? The world was born under an evil spell, but God sends his son into the world. And he's born in the most unlikely place. And he's not at all the kind of person you would think would do something. But he takes on these Romans and these Pharisees and demons. But in the end, he's taken to die shamefully on a cross. And it looks like evil has defeated him. And yet, he is raised from the dead. And he brings together a band of people, renews their lives, and then leads them to change the world. But one day, he promises he will return and renew this whole world. This is Micah's story today, right? Lewis says, I've never heard the Christian story told like that. You're right. It is just like all these other stories that point to these underlying realities. What are the underlying realities? Evil exists. Right? There's more to our world than meets the eye. Humanity has failed to accomplish any lasting peace on this planet. Right? These are these underlying realities that these stories are built on. So Tolkien says to him, no. It doesn't point to it. Jesus is the underlying reality to which all these stories point. Because this story is not just a story. This story became historical. This story became a fact. The ruler of ancient origins was born. He is our ancient king. So the coming of the Messiah isn't just about an ancient king, but as Micah is telling us today, he's also about this future king that's going to come. And so he begins to describe the reign of this future king. And he says he'll stand and lead his flock, and he'll be highly honored around the world, right? Michael says at some point, Micah, that this descendant of David's lineage is going to rise up first out of Bethlehem, and he is going to become a king And he's going to make the meeting place of God and heaven and earth in Jerusalem, Israel, strong again. But there's one key difference in what Mike is speaking about here in this kingdom that's coming, this Messianic kingdom. It's not going to just include Israel. It's going to include all the nations of the earth. For he will be highly honored around the world um, now, if you're into end times theology, we could be talking about a literal thousand-year messianic kingdom or we could be talking about the new heaven and the new earth that will ultimately be created. But either way, Christ is going to rule in either one of those scenarios, right? And Amos, who is contemporary, I said, of uh, Micah, in the last chapter of his uh, pr- prophetic book, he talks about the fact that when this king, this descendant of David is born... It's going to be a universal kingdom. He goes, in that day, this is at the end of his book, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls, says the Lord. From the ruins I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. And Israel will possess what is left of Edom. That's the country south, uh, east of Israel, but also spoke of that whole land. And all the nations I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken and he will do these things. So, Jesus is the ancient king, but he's also, and these promises yet to be fulfilled, a future king. And my whole point this morning is we better not wait to be ready to get ready to meet him. By the time he comes back, it'll be too late. There's that bumper sticker that used to float around here in the late 70s, early 80s, and forgive me if this sounds crude to you, but I used to chuckle at it. Jesus is coming again. This time he's pissed. (laughs) Um, There is some truth to that uh, because he came as a sacrificial lamb, a king that was willing to lay his life down. He comes as the conquering king when he returns again so I want to just close with this last point how you and I should prepare to meet the king of kings and two subpoints to that question is you have to believe in his death and what do I mean by that well I want you to see where it says here that he will stand to lead his flock he is a what a what kind of king? A shepherd king, right? And I'll tell you, a pen the sheep is not a democracy. What the shepherd says goes. But in this shepherd king's story, he lays down his life for his sheep. And that famous passage. In John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. He gets between the wolf and the sheep. And here's the thing. You don't actually come under the rule of a shepherd with the attitude that, well, he's in charge. I guess I better do what he tells me to do or there'll be held to pay. That isn't what the shepherd king is looking for from you and I. That's not surrender. Here's what surrender is. It doesn't start by a view of someone having power and authority over you. In this story, it starts by a view of seeing a shepherd with the power and authority who has sacrificial love to give to you. You know, parents... Particularly when our children are young have great authority over them and if I said it once I said it a thousand times when they said to me why because I speak it out <laughs> because I said so right as they got a little older you had to get a little more crafty <laughs> but In the end, if your authority was to have any influence on your children as they grew, there had to be a connection from the kids to the parents where they understood my mom and dad have laid down their life for us. To some measure or capacity, think of your own parents. Did I mean, my dad was a tyrant at times. In my life, because he was a PTSD World War II, Korean War Marine. It took me a lifetime to understand what that did to him. But one thing I knew was my dad would lay his life down for me. That kept my connection to him. Jesus laying his life down for us as our shepherd should make us say, why wouldn't we trust someone who has done this for us? So we have to believe in his death because that's the key ingredient to making that connection to who he is as our king, a king that would die for us. Secondly, you have to obey His word. And I know what some of you are thinking. Hey, wait a minute, Dan, I've heard you preach this so many times. I thought salvation was by God's grace alone, Then I cannot earn it. Absolutely correct. God is opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning it. You're not going to earn stripes with God to enter into his presence. It's a free gift through what Christ did for you. But when Jesus laid down his life for you, and you received his death in your place, and he says, follow me, he's saying, I came to not only rescue you, but to bring a change in you from the very things that I came to die for you. That's why John, the apostle, would later write, those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. It is a, again, it's a relationship of love built on a sacrifice for you that you appreciate them. That is how we know we're living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. That's the goal. You will never be perfect in this life, but you will be growing in Christ is the outcome of faith. You cannot help but grow if you persevere in faith. But in the end, we can't get around this. Jesus might be a lot of things to you and me, but he's not your king unless you've made this commitment that whatever he says in his word, you are going to do, whether you like it or not. Are you hearing me? If you've made that commitment, then he is king. If you haven't made that commitment, then you're still king. And he's not. It's as simple as that. I used to say to my boys, things like uh, you know, particularly as they approach their teenage years, here, here's what I'd like you to do. And, you know, ultimately the pushback in, in some way was. Well, let me think about that because I need to come to an agreement. And if I can, in my mind, and understand what you're asking me to do, then I'll be happy to do it. So maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't, right? It was kind of that kind of nuance, right? And I look back on that, and this is true of my own life, of my own father. That's agreement. That's not obedience. Listen. You know, I would say to my guys, I I want you to obey me not because you agree with me, not because you like it, not because you understand it. I want you to obey it because I'm 45 years old and you're 16 and you're 14. If you're a teenager and you live your life on the basis of I'll do the things that you're asking me to do, if they make sense to me, you're going to be dead in two hours. So if you only do what God says because it makes sense to you, then you... Have the authority, not God. And I want you to remind you, he is not a tottering grandpa figure in your life. He is the ancient and future king. So here's a question that I have been asked, and there's not a simple answer to this question because can I be saved if I confess Jesus as my savior but don't make him my Lord too? And the first thing I would say is what I talked about a few weeks back about the thief on the cross, right? Where we listened to Alistair Begg preach that short sermon where the thief on the cross is in heaven and uh, and he's doing a little mock-up of that story. He says, I wanted to be there. I wanted to hear what the angel said when he showed up. (laughs) He said, why are you here? And ultimately he says, I don't know. He goes, But the man on the middle cross said I could come. Right? It's it's a powerful testimony of God's grace in our life. That when you confess Christ as as your Lord and Savior, right, he does that very thing for you. The thief didn't have time to get baptized. The thief didn't have time to read theology. The thief didn't have time to be obedient. All he could do on that point was what? Basically was confess. And he said, we deserve our punishment. But this man has done nothing. That was his great statement of faith that day on the cross. But for any of us to look at it this way, to say, I want Christ's salvation, but I have no interest in doing what he says, is to re- redefine his salvation into something that is no salvation at all. We are meant to live with this tension as followers of Christ. That we walk in grace and we know grace will completely exonerate us of our sin before the Father. But in our fallen flesh, we are always going to have moments of tension. We're always going to have crossroads. It's, it's really almost every day of my life, and it can be as small as an attitude in my heart in that moment, a tone of voice perhaps, that says, which way will you step? And I, I confess, I've stepped on the wrong side of that crossroad many, many times, particularly... In my early years as a believer, because I wasn't used to surrendering my authority and power. When I first heard the news, the good news of Christ, it came to me as it comes to all of us, as a person filled with pride and self determination. Meaning, I did what I wanted. And within the reasonable confines of calling my own shots in life, meaning I wasn't an overt criminal, (laughs) but I was robbing from God every day. As a child of the sexual revolution, I fed my appetites without restraint. And I don't have to go into details because we all know what I'm saying. Just before I received Christ as my Savior, I began to count the cost, and I'm not ashamed to say I was feeling grave tension of giving up my life on my terms and surrendering them to Christ. It was clear to me what that decision involved, and it was not an easy one for me to make. And so what did I do? I compromised it. I could have used a very heavy dose of the message I'm sharing today at that point, particularly the part where I measured the depth of his love to give his life in my place however even in those days had someone asked me in light of Christ dying for you what are you willing to turn from in your life I would have said anything and everything he asked but I didn't I played with God I took a lot of grace and gave back just a little faithfulness and obedience and in doing so I lived with a compromised belief. Very little power to walk in his spirit. In short, my repentance was minimal. But there's good news on both sides. Why perseverance pays off. Nothing shakes me more when I see people that come to church for years and fall away. Not that 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 means they've lost their salvation, but they just, they drift. And I recognized that with all my compromise in my my 20s as a follower of Christ, um, I needed to stay close no matter the cost. I needed to keep being reminded of who I was. I needed to be ultimately reminded of who Christ was and what he did for me over and over and over. And that perseverance pays off. You keep following Jesus, and here's why. You keep showing up, even though you, you've blown it for the umpteenth time. Right? Because I love this passage, and I, I uh, literally, with a group of guys, memorized the entire book of Philippians. Being confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Not me. Jesus. He will see me through. Keep showing up. Keep bending your knee, even when you stood and shook your fist at him. And as this journey went on for me, and it was about a five-year process of really coming out of some compromised living, I discovered confession became a lot easier for me. You know, we have a group that meets over here on Tuesday night called Overcomers Outreach, and it's mistakenly thought of a group for alcoholics and addicts. It's not. I mean, they're, they're welcome to show up there. But the banner of it is ultimately anyone who struggles with compulsive behavior of any sort. And, and, and I, when Rex first told me that years ago, I said, well, that's, that's every human on earth. <laughs> I said, why are there only 12 people over there? Um, as I as I grew, confession became easier, and I know that that's what transpires. These people talk about their lives, you know, easily, and that became true of my life. And you guys know that from listening to me speak up here. Uh, and with confession, you know what followed my confession? It was the weirdest thing. Obedience. I got I got pretty tired of talking about the same sin over and over again. And, you know, once you get, once it, as Rex would say, once it crosses your lips, the power goes away. You know, it was a, it was a slow, arduous journey. But here I be. Amen. One day soon, the Messiah, Jesus, the ancient king, our future king, he will come to you. And that can either mean his second coming, and I hope you're prepared for it, or the day you die, and I hope you're prepared for it. Whatever comes first, either way, you will meet your king. You know, in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, it, it says, um, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, not just those who called on Christ. All of us, we will see his glory. So I ask you in closing, how do you suppose you would like to meet him? Where you're in charge of your destiny or where he is? I couldn't think of a better question for us to answer at this time of year as we celebrate his first coming, the journey of his loving sacrifice. Do you trust in the one promise so long ago who did come as foretold and will come again as foretold? As Corbett so eloquently shared last week, you only need to anticipate it and plan accordingly because as God is my witness, you will meet Jesus. And the choice is yours each and every day. But as for me and my house, and you are my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may we listen to your spirit, leading us to plant our lives more deeply in the soil of your lordship. Father, make it not a burden upon our hearts. But help us to just see the ease of what it means to live with you in charge. Those areas that we struggle with, Lord, may we find those that we can share with. In areas where we're in open rebellion against you, may our heart be crushed to think that we know what's best. May we truly desire to follow you and remember that you did lay your life down for us. So, I would think we would be willing to obey your word in ways that are proportionate to that fact because you are the ancient and future king. May we never forget that. We pray this in Jesus' amazing, precious name. Amen. My favorite, I don't think we're singing it right now, but my favorite Christmas carol is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And you know what the next line is? Glory to the newborn king. All right. Merry Christmas to all of you, and uh, to all of you, a good night. No, go <laughs> uh, We'll have the yeshers come forward, and we also have a discussion group going on at 1030. So...